And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod, where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tungata Finawa of Tafanganuya Taro, where I'm recording today. Hello, Jen. How are you? Hi, no, I'm I'm all right. I'm very busy. It's very stressful, but it's fine. It's fine. Everything is fine. How are you? Uh, yeah, I exist. I'm alive. Yeah, it's been great. Love that. <laughs> very important things. Yeah, it's just been a bit of a big week, I would say. A big week. Not bad, mm-hmm. but just big. Well, on that topic, why don't you tell us what sparked joy for you this week? Well, this is very exciting. So on Wednesday, I had to go in for my citizenship test, which for people who aren't trying to become Australian is where they quiz you on things like Australian values and how the government works and like what you are and aren't allowed to do. And I got 100% on the test, which was really exciting because I am not good at doing well on tests. So I was very proud of myself. And then about five minutes later, apparently my federal police clearance came back because I got a letter saying that my application has been approved and I will become a citizen as soon as I attend a ceremony. So yay! I'm like 98% of the way there. So (laughs) exciting. Congratulations. Thanks. I'm almost Australian. And um, I can't believe that this thing I've had to do for literally 10 years is just done. It's just done. Like, I've been eligible to apply for 10 years. Applauding, <laughs> applauding. Everyone join me in a round of applause for Jen, please. Thank you. I'm feeling very... I'm actually going to be Antipodean very soon, so I'm excited. Whoop, whoop. So yeah. Um, what sparked joy for you this week? Oh, I just had a lovely morning. I went and got my hair cut, and then my friend Meredith met me in town, and we went op shopping because we were looking for a 80s-style prom dress for her... birthday party that's coming up so we went to all these op shops and tried on all these dresses and we had a lovely brunch and then we went to a costume shop and tried on some more dresses and like played with tiaras and just had a really lovely day and then had ice cream at the end of it to celebrate our success because we found her a dress so i was just like it's just so lovely it's just like such a nice thing to do to be able to do Mm. on a saturday and it's like a beautiful wellington day as well and just yeah it just felt really wholesome (laughs) so yeah it was lovely Oh, I'm so glad. That actually sounds like a lot of fun. It is really fun when you do just get to like go shopping for something really silly and enjoyable. Yeah. It just kind of threw me back to like being a teenager and, you know, going shopping with your friends and you don't really have anywhere to be or anything to do. You're sort of just mm. wasting time. And like we had a goal today, but it still felt kind of like just fun. So, yeah. I don't know. It was just joyful. Oh, that's great. Oh, and I'm glad she found a dress. That prom theme, prom themed birthday sounds amazing, to be honest beautiful dress as well like that kind of blue t- like yeah I don't know jewel blue color and just the, you know that 80s taffeta kind of yep. fabric like yep. it's gonna be glorious and oh. she was like should I get a tiara I'm like yes you're gonna be prom queen obviously it's your birthday <laughs> absolutely say yes yeah. to the tiara mm. and it's like studded with like blue diamonds when she was like writing it up at the costume shop for hiring it's the forest queen tiara and i'm like i'm just into it can't we wear tiaras all the time i was trying them all on it's so fun it's better than a headband because it's like it's jewelry as well as an accessory so yeah also i want to give a shout out to the girls who were in there they must have been like i don't know uni age but they were trying on all these renaissance costumes and it was just joyful because they're going to a costume party as henry VIII's wives and has a group costume i was just like (laughs) man can i come to this party it sounds amazing that would be so much fun wouldn't it (laughs) yeah they just seem to be having the time of their lives so you know if you ever stumble upon this podcast shout out to you guys amazing i'm so glad you had a great morning that's so good Hmm. Well, this week we're reading chapters 21 through 27 through the theme of reality. Um, do you have a story for us about reality? Yeah, so reality is an interesting topic, isn't it? So I was sort of thinking about moments where, you know, what you think is true doesn't end up being true or where you were just like, we talk about reality a lot at work, just being like, oh, the reality of being an adult and how tedious mm. that can be sometimes when you have to do things. Yeah. But then I remembered the story from like my childhood. I used to dream quite vividly when I was younger. I had a lot of nightmares. I had a lot of dreams. I no longer really dream like this. If I do dream, I'm almost always setting my own dreams. Like I can tell myself what I want to dream about. It's quite fun. So I do a lot of, this is what I'm going to dream about tonight. (laughs) And then ease myself into it. But if I do dream like organically, I don't really, I very rarely 
remember it. Like I must dream, but I just don't remember it. Mm. Um, but I remember once when I was younger, I had this dream and this dream was a lifetime. You know, I, it was just lasted for so long. I was, you know, must have been like nine years old and we were on holiday as a family. And then I was back at school and then I was in high school and then I was an adult and then I was doing all these things. I basically had an entire lifetime in this dream and it was just mm. lovely. Like I had such a good time. So many amazing things were happening to me in this dream. And then I woke up and I realized none of it was real. None of it had happened. But I felt so bereft at this Mm. life that I thought that I had, this loss that I thought of these amazing experiences that weren't real. And I really felt that really acutely. And it just made me think, you know, what is real anyway? Like, what is real in that moment? Because the feeling was real. The fact that I felt that loss, that I felt that joy in the dream, that I could remember it afterwards that I could remember enough of it to feel the grief at not having that life, at not having those moments. And that is a real thing in and of itself. But the things that led to the feelings aren't real. And I think about this a lot when you know fan- you fantasize about things. You, When you're thinking about your future life or you're yeah. thinking about experiences you're going to have, often part of the problem is that you are already experiencing the joy and therefore you don't do the thing because you're like, I've already had the the satisfaction of doing the thing. It does, it's not the doing that, yeah, that necessitates the feeling. So it's this weird thing about you can con yourself into f- doing something or believing something that you never actually did. Yeah. And, you know, like this is just very post-structuralist in a way. It's very postmodern. You, you know, the situation wasn't real, but my emotions are. So yeah. are both real? Are neither real? Like postmodernism would say that it's both at once because there is no objective truth or reality, right? So who's to say there is only one reality? We don't experience life all in the exact same way. We bring our own context, our own expectations. So in a way, we sculpt our own truths. We sculpt our own re- realities. And like, okay, there are some facts that govern our lives, but even science is not immalleable, you know? Like everything is shifting. Nothing is set in stone. The parameters of the game are always changing and evolving. And so you just have to shift with it. And like, I know it's hard for me to hold this in my head because I'm quite pragmatic. Like I like to follow science and logic and reason. So I struggle with things like conspiracy theories. But if you put this lens over the top of it, that is reality to those people. That is what they feel. That is what they believe. And you can't really argue with them about that. They believe it's real. It doesn't matter that it isn't because, again, it's how we feel. And it made me think that, you know, humans are such simple creatures because we're really hostage to our emotions. We're hostage to our feelings. And the reality, how we came to those feelings is actually irrelevant in a lot of ways. It's just (laughs) the feeling that matters. So, yeah, that's my roundabout little pontification on reality. I love it. Thank you. It is weird how a dream can really just rope you in and keep you there, huh? Because your mind believes it, right? Like, your mind believes it's real. You're feeling it as if it's real. But it's not. It's it's the Matrix. It's the whole conundrum of the Matrix. (laughs) Like... Yeah. If you believe you die... If your mind believes it. Or the metaverse. This is what they want from us. This book in particular, reading about Ronan taking things out of his dreams and his dreams being so real, and then your story about dreaming. And then just in the past couple of months, I've re-engaged with the Wheel of Time series, which I'm trying to finish Mm. by the end of the year. And there's a whole world of like the dreaming world where you can like walk and go places while dreaming. And those things are real. Like if it happens to you in this dream world, it happens to you in real life. And then I watched all of Sandman this week as well, Mm. which is all about dreams as a real place and what the effects on various people, you know, what effects that can have. So it's just a really interesting intersection between dreams and reality this week. Which yeah. I'm really loving. If you want to get into like the woo-woo side of it as well, like you've got this kind of premonitionary side of dreams as well. Mm. So, you know, I, whether or not you believe in this stuff, like I 100% feel like I've had dreams, which then became true, but nothing like serious. It'll be things where like, I remember as a kid, I would say to my mum, but we've done this before. Like I've been here before. We've done this before. And she yeah. would be like, yeah, I sometimes have dreams like that too. It just happens. And you, you can read the signs behind it. that says that it's just your mind telling you. Yeah. It's your mind sort of just glitching and telling you that this is a thing that's happened before. But I don't know. I kind of love the idea that you just have these mundane little yeah here's the future it's completely irrelevant but yeah you get this chunk of it yeah i always feel like my dreams are just a giant washing machine for whatever else is going on in my brain and this is just what mm. comes out of the the drain pipe i guess <laughs> like, like all the little well, dreams bits and yeah dreams are very important for processing our feelings and processing our traumas if you don't do it like if you don't dream properly you struggle to to work through a lot of things because when you sleep that's when your brain is processing it's like yeah. shutting it down 
it's doing its own thing. I love it. Mm. Oh my goodness. Thank you. What a great <laughs> what a great discussion of reality, right to begin with. I love it. I'm ready. I'm jazzed up. Should I do chapter right. summaries? Please do, yeah. All right. Blue thinks it's time Ronan gets some advice from the women of 300 Foxway. He resists, but ultimately capitulates. Kala helps Ronan figure out how to wake up his mother. Gansey organizes an outing to the lake to scan for objects, but Orla comes along to make things difficult, mostly for Blue. They find an ancient shield boss and an ancient Camaro wheel? Hmm. Monmouth is subject to three break-ins in the space of half an hour, the most careful of them being the Grey Man, who disposes of two other hitmen while he organizes a baby date with Mora. Gansey and Ronan find Kaminsky to tell him to stop breaking in and engage in a little summer arson just for funsies. Um, I love the Grey Man so much. He's so pragmatic just about how he goes about his things. It's just so great. I, I love the way he creates his own reality, like his existence, yeah. the way he exists in the world, the way he shapes his meaning. It's just really interesting. Yeah, he, he likes that Green Mantle thinks of him as a thing and not a person. Mm. Um, and he is very careful with how he approaches Mora. Like, he has this really beautiful saying where he's waiting for her to answer, and he says, heart wounds, you know, make people think more slowly, which mm. I thought was really beautiful. Like, he's really aware of how he fits in the world, but also isn't at all in the world. Yeah, and also the exchange he has with Blue, right? Like, he's just so accepting of it, and they're so accepting of him being a hitman. I kind of just love that everyone is just very, like, okay, this is just yeah. the reality of the situation, right? I mean, it... it Finally, Maura did ask, like, I have a daughter. Are you going to be a danger mm. to her? And he was like, oh, no, I'm not dangerous to her, which was nice. Like, And Blue was just like, oh, you're the hitman. Like, this is a totally normal thing. Yeah, I do. But he says that and he's not aware of the connection between Blue and the boys, right? Like, even mm. though he's after the lynches, necessarily not Gansey, but there's that moment when Gansey's on the phone and he's like, uh-oh. But in a town that small, I mean, it's going to be hard yeah. for things not to be connected. Exactly. So many connections this time, which I'm really loving. Um, I also loved his description of the grey days, you know, this kind of depression and yeah. how that alters your perception of reality. Like it constricts time. You lose track of time. You don't eat all these things that would normally define and quotation marks, you know, reality gets completely disturbed when you have a different mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking back to that, that, that whole passage about how he lost himself in several day, gray days, I was thinking back to when my son was a really little and I had just kind of started to realize I was ha ha experiencing some serious postpartum depression. Um, mm. And so I went back through my camera roll and was just looking at pictures of him as a baby and realizing, like, I don't remember a lot of it, but I still am so glad I took all those photos because I have a lot of photos and videos and... And the videos, I sound okay. So I'm like, okay, so it wasn't that bad. You know, like the family was all right. But I just wish I had more of it in my own memory, in my own brain. Yeah, you completely lose it. Like my first year of high school in, in Australia, so 2015, no, what? 20, 2002 it would have been. I have no recollection of most of that year. Mm. I don't remember it at all. So your brain just goes, My brain nope. just went, we're not processing that. Let's move on. <laughs> well, let's put a pause on this. Do you really want to remember how bad you feel right now? You don't. Yeah, maybe it's self-protection in a way. Yeah, or you just don't have the resources to, like, fix the memories in place. Everything else is being used for survival. Yeah. And then there's, of course, the whole other element of that where people just suppress all their memories, right, when they're really horrible and they don't want to engage with them. Sometimes it's easier just to be like, no, that didn't happen. It's fine. <laughs> it's, just it's, it's gone now. Put that in a box. Lock it down. Put some books on top of it. Put it right back in the middle of the mind palace. <laughs> yep. Doesn't have to be something you look at ever again. That's fine. Mm. <laughs> oh, um, right off the bat, we get the sense that there's this conflict between Ronan and Blue between religion versus like what her mother does, which is supernatural. And Blue automatically, she's so upset because it's happening in her inner circle. Like she's really frustrated that Ronan is being recalcitrant about this particular thing because he's religious and she's not like she's just heard it so many times but the reality is is that she hadn't expected it to come from someone in her group and I thought that was a really interesting thing too so yeah and it's interesting definitely coming from Ronan because he he needs to set the parameters of his own reality right because yeah. he doesn't understand himself he doesn't understand the things that he can do so he clings to the things that he does know that he grew up with which is this kind of idea of religion and hell and heaven and telling the truth and he's just constructs this reality for himself that he has to operate within because otherwise he is untethered 
to the world yeah. as it exists. Yeah. And I also thought it was interesting that they ended up seeing Kala, who I view as sort of the Ronin of the women of 300 Fox Way. Mm. Yeah. That, like, she's just very, she's always going to say the thing. She's always going to be very suspicious. She's going to be aggressive when she doesn't need to be. You know, mm. but she can also be very helpful and like unexpectedly generous, which I think is very true in Ronan as well. So I love the parallel. This was all this was awful parallels. This whole section, yes, yeah, so parallel many city. parallels. Yeah, um, uh, but I, I love just that also... it was Kala they went to for yeah. the reality of what what Ronan is, and also the reality of what Ronan makes. Yeah, I love that, and I love the idea that you know that Kala tells them that that a need you need a dreamer for a dream thing to be alive, like mm-hmm. you're sort of connected and. That is a reality for a dream thing, right? That's not beholden to the rules of the world. It's beholden to the rules of the dreamer. So it's not animated yeah. by a soul. It can only exist in this reality that's specifically crafted for it. It's just, just fascinating. And also so scary. I, like, just... I could feel Ronan's fear bubbling up underneath as he realized that the only way to get his mother back was to put her into the dream. And the only thing that he knew that was a dream big enough was, was caves water. Just admitting he feels, that. He feels so connected to Cave's Water, right? He says that he's in the roots of Cave's Water. Mm. He just feels this intrinsic thing. But I just love him so much because he's like, he's so conflicted in the way that he holds these opposites in his mind. Like, he is such a creature driven by being truthful and honest and not telling lies. Like, he's like, I never tell a lie. But you can only tell the truth about what you know and there's so much that he doesn't know. So he's always thinking yeah. that he's truthful, but you can easily lie about something without knowing that you're lying about it. And, yeah. you know, he talks about his soul being in enough peril as it is because he's just, like, clinging to this idea of religion which can't really apply to him when he has the power that he does. It's just, yeah. I, I love him. I love him so much. He's subjecting himself to something that he doesn't actually have to subject himself to, which I think is a really interesting choice for him. It's Catholic like guilt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I grew up basically like the guiltiest version of Protestant, but yeah, definitely uh, a lot of Catholic guilt. I feel. Um, and another quick re- reminder of Catholicism was the "I'll light a candle for your car," Kavinsky at the end, which I thought was really lovely. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, that's the thing you do. Um, yeah, his reality isn't actually subject to the frameworks that he puts himself in. But there was this, I think, links back to when Blue was saying, you know, Gansey gave him that look and Ronan would do anything for Gansey. And I probably would, too. This is Blue's internal narrative. And I just really love that they recognize that one of the parameters for Ronan is Gansey. Mm. And it's not a problem because he trusts him. He trusts him and he believes him. You really see that connection with between them again, both in the last section, but in this section as well. You know, that whole scene when they're at Kavinsky's substance party and he, mm. you know, he talks about them having been a two-headed creature for so long, Gansey and Ronan, and how he can't articulate why he's upset by the fact that he's going to DC without him. And, like, so much about Ronan, it's just communication. Like, he says he can't talk to Declan, even though now he knows that Ronan, like, Declan knows about Niall, Declan knows about Ronan, but he's like, I can't talk to him about it. Just talk to Declan. <laughs> I know. Somebody talked to Declan. Oh my gosh. Poor Declan. I, you've read Grey War and I haven't even touched it yet. I, this is not the week for me to try and read it. Just by your face, I'm now very scared. <laughs> I can't even talk about it because I get kind of choked up. Like I've had, I just. Okay. I'm sorry. I just, it's just, it means so much to me and it hurts me so much. Like when I finished it, I felt physically ill and I messaged my friend being like at work at the day because I was saying that you know I read it on work time lolzies sorry (laughs) and I was like messaging the group chat afterwards and I'm like I don't understand how it can hurt so much like why am I in so much pain and I haven't felt like this since I finished Harry Potter and that was different because I knew I still had the films but now I just have this aching gaping void within myself and it is like it's amazing that I can feel like this about a fictional world but also it just hurts so much and like I just kind of get choked up by it, but mm, it's fine. Mm. Yeah, so it's a scared. Lot. No, it's good. It's fine. Everything is fine. But let's get back to reality because I think Niall <laughs> has really shaped the reality for these boys, right? Like with yeah. Aurora, but also you know the barns, everything in the barns that he's created. But then also this will that he has shaped yeah. the reality of these boys and. 
Declan living with that and now Rona knowing that Declan lives with that. And yeah, it's just not real for Ronan that he could talk to his brother. I mean, the, the fact is there's no reality. There's no ability in his reality that he and Declan could have a relationship. It's just not on the cards at this point. It's all antagonism all the time. Um, the, the one that really got me was the admission from both Matthew and Ronan, tacit admission that Declan was no one's favorite. And I immediately was like, you can be my favorite, Declan. I'll Aww. love you the best. Somebody needs to. I love that Ronan has that thing when he's with Matthew, just mentioning that, you know, when you say something out loud, that is when you make it real. Because you can mm. think a lot of things, but it's through verbalizing that that you actually make something happen. And he says on page 174 that that was probably why he called Matthew. Probably he'd meant to promise this impossible hope from the very beginning. Probably he needed to say it out loud so it would stop chewing a hole through his stomach. Like he has to verbalize it. He has to make it a promise. He has to make it a big thing in order to make it a reality. Yeah. I love the parallel between Declan having an ulcer and Ronan thinking about giving himself one. I was just like, you guys, you're the same. You're little same-sames. He's also so fascinated by the idea that Declan is, like, taking sleeping pills. I wonder if that moment he's like, oh, maybe Declan's a dreamer, honestly. I like that he goes to see Matthew. And the thing I like about him going to see Matthew the most is that it's just a perfect example of how he's kinder to the parts of himself that don't have a soul. Mm. So he treats everything that he makes, you know, obviously not the nightmares, but, like, he treats Chainsaw so beautifully and he treats Matthew so beautifully. And those are things that he's dreamed. Those are you know creatures that he's dreamed but he treats them better than he treats himself so his soul imperiled or not isn't the thing that he loves the most it's it's the things that he's made yeah and i think like his night horrors are just a manifestation of his self-hatred right it's this yeah. thing that he creates that he has to fight because he just loathes himself so much because he can't square with what he is he doesn't have a framework for the reality that he exists in because his reality is different to other people's and he doesn't have anything to steer him in that. And of course that leads him to horrible places in his own mind. And, you know, he talks about it in that section with Kavinsky, like all these things, how he throws that Molotov cocktail and it's like he can finally breathe in that moment, right? Yeah. The moment of destruction because he can let go. That whole scene, as it arced through the air, trails of a fire orange in its wake, Ronan felt as if he had just hurled his heart which is what he wants to do because he feels too much. Like, actually, yeah. Ronan's problem is that he is just riddled with emotions and he just feels so much. So for him to be able to, like, take his heart out and just get it away from himself is so freeing. And, like, dude, I relate with that. Like, I see you. I feel you. Sometimes I just also don't want to feel anything for a bit. <laughs> Especially when I was that young. Like, you know, I just yeah. really relate to Ronan on so many levels. Everything happens so much when you're 17 and 18 and 15 and 16 and all of those feelings are just surging around in you and it's overwhelming. It is so overwhelming. Yeah, and there's just something about feeling like the world isn't made for you. You know, like he he's always asking, what am I? He's always asking yeah. God, why am I like this? What is the point of me? You know, what am I? He's always looking for a reason. And when you exist in a world that doesn't feel like it's friendly or easy to live in or that if you're always the odd one out that is so hard and I yeah. actually loved you know just going back to that because when Blue and Ronan have that disagreement about the religion she makes the argument that her mother sees the, the first time she saw the future was in a dream right and she says on page yeah. 162 a dream Ronan it was like she sacrificed it wasn't like she sacrificed a goat in the backyard to see it she didn't try to see the future it's not something she becomes it's something she is yeah. And I just think that is so true of so many things that people will say is wrong. People will always try to put these things on people being like, that is the wrong way to be, that is sinful, that is this, that is that. But so yeah. often it's just people's intrinsic life force. People don't choose to be these things. I don't think anyone would choose to be different. This is a weird thing to put on people. Yeah. And also, like, just to get on the religious side of things, there's an inherent disagreement with the concept that. You are created by a deity and then however you are made is somehow wrong and not approved by that deity. Like, come on. If you think about that, those two things don't mesh. Yeah. You're either made completely knowingly by an all-knowing creator who obviously put the stamp of approval on you because you were made that way. Or hmm. maybe these rules that we have are just man-made and horrible. Maybe yeah. these ideas are just cultural mores that we can reassess as time goes on and, and possibly work toward a better understanding of being good humans. I don't know. Because know. reality is subjective and it's always shifting and changing. The rules in which we live our lives are changing, as they should. Nothing should be fixed and sewn. And this is the problem with a lot of religious dogmas, that they try to 
hold on to things that were relevant centuries ago. Why would that apply to us now? Like, it doesn't and make any sense. why would we need it? Yeah. Mm, makes me angry. Yeah, I always say, for anybody who's sort of going through that um, deconstructionist, like, realizing that they were in a church that was maybe evangelical and they're not sure where to turn, like, I would say start with Peter Enns, who talks about just interpreting the Bible in a way that's actually more true to the, I don't want to say vibe, but like vibe. Um, <laughs> and then Sarah Bessie, who's incredible and who's so full of gentleness and love about like, we're all just here. Let's just be the best people we can be. There's so much more to life than like drawing circles around who can and can't be in this particular club. Yeah. What is sinful again, in inverted commas, like who is to decide? I don't think any, regardless of your religious decisions, whether you're religious yeah. or not, whatever, like, no one gets to decide that. We're all just human beings. I don't understand why one human has more right to another to decide who someone is sinful or not. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, who yeah. died and made you king of the sins? There's an entire book called The Bible that's like, you can't judge anyone because that's not your job. But, oh, I guess people forget to read that part. Anyway, salty rant over. I think a lot of that is also just because people are so desperate for meaning. You know, this is the whole yeah. thing. We're constantly making meaning. And this is where the fragility of reality comes in, I think. You see it in the section. Like, they are shaping their own reality. They needed it to be a raven. It was going to be a raven. I think a lot of stuff like astrology and tarot work because we are looking for meaning. Yeah. We find we the connections. Yeah. yeah. We make our own realities. And like in this, you see reality is already fracturing. You know, time is a circle stuff. All of that is fracturing reality. And Gansey talks about it, page 194. We know the line messes with time. But he felt undone, not exactly undone, but unmoored, released from the ruts of logic. You know, he's mm. becoming disentangled from the rules that he believes reality to be. And Noah yes. reenacting his death over oh, and over again. Yeah. I, and not realizing that he's doing it. That's the other thing. Like, it's a reality for everybody who experiences it who's mm -hmm. not Noah. Noah wasn't there at that moment, but he's like the echo of what's happening. So Blue is in this really terrible position of having watched him now for the excruciating 11-minute murder. Hmm. And she watches. This is the thing that really gets me is she bears witness every time. Yeah. Like, she's seen it enough. And this isn't somebody who's like, oh, gosh, this is going to take some time. I better wait it out by reading a book or whatever. She watches it every time. So she is bearing witness to this awful event that happens. And she's always so relieved when he, like, snaps out of it and it's himself again. I want to talk about the reality of, like, loving your friends so much that you're willing to step through that trauma over and over again just to be there for them. Hmm. There's yeah. something really beautiful about that, that connection that she has with Noah to just love him as he is. Which reminds me of something that um, the gray man says, because he talks about the, he's fascinated by brothers, despite feeling like yeah. he fails at being one, right? He talks about the comment about King Alfred and how he made them a brotherhood. And I saw the, the parallel with Gansey, right? He makes mm -hmm. them a brotherhood. But he also has this line on page 198 when he's thinking about going back to academia because the kinks intrigued him because the, although they fought continuously, they remained together for decades. That, he thought, was brotherhood. And again, this idea that, you know, Ronan can be insufferable, Adam can be difficult, but they stick <laughs> with each other because they're in a brotherhood, right? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, we're getting a puppy and we had uh, someone talking to us about, like, oh, well, if the puppy and the cat don't get along, you can just get rid of the cat. And our cat is notoriously difficult, but we are not getting rid of her. And I went on this <laughs> entire huge rant to you and to my husband about, like, how dare anyone say that about our cat? And, like, just because she's difficult, she's a part of the family, mm -hmm. she's staying with us, like, we're going to keep her, we're going to keep working with her. And then while I was texting you this, like, furious novel of defense, she peed on my bed. And the reality is that, yes, we do have a difficult cat, but the reality is also that we are going to keep her because she's part of our family. She's one of us. Yeah. We can choose that sort of brotherhood. And we have, like we have chosen, like we will have this difficult animal. This will be our difficult animal. We will love her and accept her love however she gives it. And that doesn't feel weird or out of place for us, but for some people it does feel like a very huge ask. Mm, because we all live our own realities. Again, yes, I have to 100%. say, yeah, yeah. reality is subjective. <laughs> I like the concept that all of the gangs you have their own different personalities and realities in different situations and I love that Ronan is so clued into the one of Gansey being like unhinged and a little dangerous oh, he's not gosh. able to figure out why but it's so obviously that conversation that he had with Blue 
wear blue light mm-hmm. to him. He was like, oh, she cares if I like a girl. Yeah, and isn't it interesting that Ronan remarks that there were many, many versions of Gansey, but this one had been rare since the introdu- introduction of Adam's Taming Presence. I'm like, Adam's Taming Presence? But he also talks about how this would be Adam's least favorite version. Like, Adam would hate this version of Gansey, right? Yeah. I would posit that Blue would also hate this version of Gansey because he's so condescending and so cold in a way. Like, he's, like, really dismissive. And that thing that he says about the difference between us and Kavinsky is that we matter, that is, that is yikes. I agree that it's yikes, but I don't disagree. And I think that that's not something that Gansey believes in, like, a some people don't matter and some people do way, but in, like, some people have a purpose and some people don't. And I think his purpose feels more genuine to him. But also, I just love it because it's 100% for Ronan. It is to say to Ronan, like, I see that you are like this person, but you matter. Mm. And he doesn't. So yeah. there is something You're intrinsically tied. about you. You're tied to me, right? Like, he doesn't belong yeah. to anyone. But he takes such ownership of Ronan in that scene, right? Like, Convincing makes that comment about, you know, lots of references to Ronan being a dog in this scene, which yeah. is not my favorite thing. But, you know, Gansey really owns it. And he's like, yeah, what what does my dog want? You know, like, he just mm-hmm. he stakes this claim on Ronan because he doesn't want Kavinsky to come in and take him from him. Yeah, it's like everybody else knows what Kavinsky wants, but Ronan. Ronan's just like, do-do-do, this is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and he also gives Ronan a task, right? He says to him, when I'm gone, dream me the world, something new for every right, which is weirdly romantic when I read it in this sense. It's I was so like, romantic. what the heck is happening? Well, I think Kavinsky thinks they're together, right? Because he calls oh, him yeah, mom and yeah, dad yeah, yeah. and like he's yeah. always making off-color remarks to that effect. But they also don't care, which I love. Like, you know, he throws out this thing about call your dog and it's obviously supposed to be an insult, but Gansey and Ronan are so solid to each other that that doesn't touch them. And I love that connection between them. I just, I think mm. it's beautiful. Like that is real brotherhood. And I kind of love seeing it. If Kavinsky had said that to Adam. Mm. Yeah, that wouldn't have worked. Or Blue for that matter. I also just love that Ronan beats him up so casually. I'm really into the <laughs> violence of the Lynch family. <laughs> it was beautiful. It was very lovely to read. It was like a dance or a ballet or yeah, it was very balletic. And that whole scene, like, with the cars, with the, 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 you feel it. You feel the pulsing of the music and the writing. You feel this heat. Mm. You feel the cars. You feel them on fire. You feel this kind of, like, ferocious energy of these people who are just, like, capable of anything in that moment. And I will just say again, I've said this before, but the novel Summer Sons spends the entire time trying to achieve what this book does (laughs) in, like, a single chapter. It's just incredible to me. Yeah, I agree. Steve Otter is an incredible writer and she knows what she's about, especially in these chapters. I just feel like I feel like I am there with them every time. Like, I feel like I'm on the boat feeling it sway mm. as Orla stands up all offended and then somehow takes off of off her clothes without moving. Like, are they are they snap clothes? On the <laughs> is she wearing stripper bell bottoms? I need to know. I just love the reality for especially, you know, <laughs> Adam and Gansey in that moment where they're like, these two girls are diving in the water and they're like dazed and wandering out loud. Like, is this really happening? I just kind of like, that. I'm ashamed of myself, I think. <laughs> and Ron is just cracking up. I just love it. It's such a great scene. That is a really good scene. I can't believe how annoyed Blue is at Orla. Oh, it feels exactly like when you're annoyed with a sibling or a friend you've known a really long time and you're just like stop being yourself oh like it's just beautiful chef's kiss i love that description of the heat right it just felt various like as an australian i could really Mm. relate to that moment especially Mm. you know on page 186 when it says from shore crows hollered apocalyptically at them and i'm like man i have walked home from school in the heat you know the height of an australian summer the grass is dead everything is brown like the color green no longer exists and then you've got the magpies sitting in the trees making that horrific noise the Australian crows make at you you know that really yeah. emo sound where they're like just yeah. at you the, the whole warble. time and it's like a 10 minute walk but it feels like you're trudging across the desert because it's so hot I just felt that right in that moment. And you moved right the middle of the drought too, so all of your formative years are going to be oh. so dusty and dry. Like sometimes, because my like I probably live what a twenty minute walk from school, and there was a McDonald's across the road from the school. So sometimes we would just make it from the school into the McDonald's where there was an air conditioner, and then sit in there for a bit just to like get the fortitude. And like all my grade would go, we would pile all our money together, buy a tray of hot chips, and just eat that. Then go to the BP to get a slushy. 
and then trudge on home because you couldn't do it in one go. It's too hot. Too oh, hot. Man. Oh, man. Australian summer. Anyway, that's just what I felt in that moment when they were describing the heat and, and the way mean, yeah. it was just the single bead of sweat going down Gansey's back. I'm just like, what? <laughs> yeah, I had that this week when I, I ran three days this week and I was just like, it's hot again. I hate this. I could feel the sweat like coursing down my back. Yeah. No, thank you. No problems I have here. I like the reality <laughs> of Blue and Gansey having little feelings but not really wanting to acknowledge it. Like Blue sort of mm. saying, I would do anything that he asked. And, and Gansey thinking like, I wish there was a universe that I could tell her that I like mm-hmm, the fact that mm-hmm, her mm-hmm. ankles are bare. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he wants that reality, right? A re- reality mm. where it's not Adam's job, but his job. And he's like, he was in a terrible mood. They just, it makes him this reckless version of himself, the fact that he can't have this reality. Yeah, it really does. I think he's he's just so taken with her. And I think this is one of the reasons I really buy the romance in, like, the older I get, the more I'm like, sure, insta-love, whatever. But I feel like they just really circle each other and circle each other and circle each other. And they are drawn to each other. And this is so well-constructed that you can see why they are like that. I also feel like because she's the best of all those friends. Like, the best parts of them, in a way. Like, she's yeah. so much of Adam. She's so much of Ronan. You know, these people that he's really bonded to and he really connects with. And she is just the next level of that. And I just love that for them. Yeah. Love it. I like that Noah being as connected to the Leylight and all of them as he is, and out of time, or I guess across all times, he's the one that knows all their secrets. So he has kind of the reality on all of them in a way that they don't even have themselves yet because he's mm. seen it all in different ways. And that shows up when he says to Blue, like, oh, when they're gone, I'll show you. I'll let you into Monmouth so you can hang out, which is one of my favorite parts of the entire series. So I'm really looking forward to when we can read that. Yeah, and I mean, that's, again, her connection with the boys, right? She's always, like, struggling to really... She wants so much to belong, and she feels like this fact that she doesn't live at Monmouth, that she doesn't go to Aglenby, that she isn't a boy. These are all things that set her apart, and it's just that struggle, that yearning for connection. They all feel that way about each other. That's the thing. Like, the reality is they all feel that insecure around each other, but they want to be connected that much, which I really love. I love the connection for the women at 300 Foxway about how they connect the boys' identities to that first ever meeting they had with them. They sort of always just keep that in their mind. And also how much Adam would just hate to forever be known as Coca-Cola Chef. The pretty one. Blue's, what was it, Blue's eyes said, I'm so sorry. And Gansey's eyes said, am I the pretty one? (laughs) Bless him. Or like all the descriptions of Gansey where adults are like, well, he looks like he fell out of bed and woke up in the Senate. Yeah. And also the, <laughs> the grey man just being like, Richard Gansey third, which means there were two other Ganseys before him. Yeah, I love the grey man. I've, I have a hard time reading any sort of murder. I'm very soft and I don't like any violence, but I think that the way that his violent parts are written is just so... It's defoddery. It's very specific to her writing. Like, I don't want to read the same thing written by other people. I think what makes it different as well is that he has his own moral code and you intrinsically understand the code and the kind of the line that's crossed for him is when they start destroying things for no reason and he's like, yeah. well now I take umbrage, right? So yes, he might yeah, have yeah. gone easy on them but the fact that they just, they don't take any pride in their work, they're not good at it, that's yeah. like a line in the sand for him and I'm, again, I relate, I get it. He's a man who does the job well. This is he your whole does. thing. It's a my person vibe. who does the job well. I just think that he's, he's careful when he needs to be and he's careful almost all of the time and I really love that about him like he appreciates all of the things about Gansey he loves the the little model Henrietta and he's like this is great and I love the the books and does he know how hard it is to to be in love with history and like he's you need to really love it yeah and I mean Gansey (laughs) does love it as well like this is the thing because he's like I don't think he understands how well hidden Glendale would be and no Gansey understands but I think yeah. also because he's he's careful with people, right? Like he wants to understand the way that people work in a way. And I, I, I relate that to his work in translation because translation is, it's, you know, it's thinking, it's taking your yeah. time, it's trying to understand the context. And I feel like the gray man applies that same thinking to people. He wants to understand the context. Yeah. Well, you're, you're so you're bilingual, right? So you would have different ways of thinking based on how languages sit in your brain. 
Mm. I still do maths in Afrikaans, not in English, but most of my thinking happens in English and other things. But I think because foundationally I learned math in Afrikaans, that is where my mm. brain goes when I'm doing math. But also I notice it most when I'm doing, when I'm learning a language because Afrikaans is Germanic based and English is Latin based. So when I'm learning other languages, I'm always looking for the base because that's yeah. what I relate to my, my language. So you can sort of find the roots for everything with those two in your pocket. Yeah, that's true. Is there, similarly, English and Afrikaans are both sort of like just amalgamations of a bunch of other stuff. They're like seven languages in a trench coat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find that interesting the way that your brain can change based on the languages you know. And I think that that's happening with the gray man, right? Like he knows enough Old English that he thinks in Old English and can examine and try to fit the translation to what its original meaning must have been. But he's always going to see it through the lens of his own reality, through the lens of himself. And I love that Blue has that comment, you know, dead language. And she's like, I'm surrounded by dead languages. But she's like intrigued by it. So much language and trying to communicate with reality, trying to find your place in the world and having these dead languages. It's kind of a metaphor for the way that you can't connect. Yeah, because you can learn Latin, but no one's speaking it. A language is dead when it doesn't change, right? That's like when there are no current speakers. That's when they... That's when they declare it extinct, right? Mm. That's why there are so many language programs around the world like save this particular language, keep this one going, keep speakers going. I mean, they revived Welsh a generation or two ago by putting everything in Welsh, having Welsh language television radio programs and making it a prerequisite at school. Yeah, what's that thing? I think, yeah, it's that it takes a generation to lose a language, but four generations to get it back because you need people to speak it. And we see that now here with Taro, right? Because so many people didn't speak it and, you know, they weren't allowed to speak it for so long because colonization. And so trying to teach your children that, you know, we've got a lot of Maori parents now teaching their kids to speak Maori first, right? Which is amazing. Like, you know, why is today not our first language? Why is English our first language? It's just weird. Like, I know we have multiple languages, like official languages, but when I mean first, it should be the first thing you see on a street sign. It shouldn't be yeah the second, you know? Like, you should be translating into English from Māori, not the other way around. And I feel the same about Welsh. Like, that is the traditional language, so that should lead. And I think it's cool yeah. in Wales that they started putting it on street signs and all these things, because it is conversationally that you see it happen. I've seen it in the, how long have I been in New Zealand? Eight years? It's come a long way even in those eight years. And you want to get to a point where it's not political to do that, right? Because it shouldn't be yeah, a leftist woke thing. It should just be accepted. I remember when Chris was working in Cardiff and she was talking about how uh, they would get Welsh speakers calling and they had to get one of her co-workers, Miranda, in, who was young enough because she'd actually gone to school and learned Welsh in school to be able to talk to the older people who only mm. spoke Welsh. Like, I love that there is this entire generation in the middle that was kind of like, huh? I don't know. But You've then just you watched... have the younger kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that scene in Dairy Girls, I love that when they go into Ireland and he's like, <laughs> why doesn't everyone just speak English? And Michelle's like, well, your lot had a good go at it, didn't they? But we didn't like that very much. I also finished Dairy Girls this week and it was so good and it was so sad and I, I loved it so much. honestly just cried at the last episode. I was Me just too. like... I just love that show so much and I love that it shows this part of history that I don't think... Like, we certainly weren't taught it. I don't think they taught it in English schools, so it's good to I get it out there. I learned about the troubles when I was in my, like, mid to late 20s. Mm. Like... Uh, you know what? Actually, I take it back. The first time I heard about it was an Eddie Izzard stand-up comedy special. That was when I heard about it. That's how I had any idea that it was happening at all. But I didn't really learn about it about it until like I went down a Wikipedia rabbit hole in my like mid to mm. late twenties. Like we, it just it wasn't a thing that we learned about. Well, and I'm from the U.S., so we only ever learned about U.S. stuff. Like that's just a fact. Yeah, but, but I'm pretty. Yeah, they don't teach this in English schools. And I feel like this is something they should probably teach in English schools. Like, yeah. Oh. It's, isn't it the 50th anniversary of the Welsh um, coal tip disaster mm. as well? Another thing I didn't know about until I watched The, the Crown. Crown. Yeah. I was like, this is horrific. Yeah. I um, have to say I'm really loving that a lot of media is just bringing historical events to our attention through narrative. Love that. Love that that's happening. Here for yeah. it. I know that I am going to go and look up um alfred the great i'm pretty sure there's a you're dead to me on him mm. episode of you're dead to me on him which is an excellent podcast for history nerds i love when the gray man says he's a modern author because in a way i feel like Gansey is a modern author right he's just yes. this assyrian legend 
He is. He's very chivalrous. Even if he can't stop looking at Annoyingly Orla so. <laughs> I love that thing where he's like, he slid a glance at Adam because it had to be done. I was just like, they had to, they had to do it. It had to be done. <laughs> it's such a boy thing. And it's also so honest. I felt like that was, yeah, that's a reality. I mean, I definitely know guys who are just uncomfortable when women are wearing revealing clothing because it feels like I don't want to feel like that I don't want to look at it and feel things I don't want to have a reaction that I'm not in control of like it's it's confronting for them do you mean Simon yeah I do yeah avert your gaze and I completely understand it because you don't want to feel caught out sorry for offending you with my presence I promise I wasn't presuming anything so funny yeah. I think that was all of my connection and reality just a lot of ranting about shaping your own reality. I will just say, you know, when this section opens, page 161, Blue's internal monologue, she's like, dream monsters were one thing, dream mothers were another. And she's like, I'm taking him to see my family. And I'm like, have you considered therapy? <laughs> just as an alternative. Maybe Ronan will feel better about a psychologist. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he will, but I do love that she's like, I'll just take him to the best people I know for solving problems, which is my family. I also love how she is just so done with all her family's nonsense with like Kala spinning around. She's like, I'm just going to shove this thing against her skin and that will shut her up. <laughs> like taking charge, Blue. I love it. Yeah. So Blue also has difficult family members, but she's very good at just accepting them as they are, which I think is why Ronan being a bit like, no, that's a cult is really confronting for her because she's used to just accepting other people for who they are. And it's hard when... I kind of love that scene because I feel like she is interpreting a lot. Like, Ronan's not really saying it. He's like, I didn't say that word. I wouldn't use that word. And she's, like, so infuriated because he's so good at being calm when other people are angry. Mm. And she talks about how he absorbs other people's anger for him to use when he's... To save it for when he needs it. He says my favourite line to Gansey, which is like, I'm being perfectly civil, you know? He's just (laughs) so calm. And she's just saying all these things and being like, this is what you think, isn't it? This is what you mean, isn't it? And he's like, I didn't say it, but I just kind of love that. It's like so much internalized frustration for Blue. And this, she's so defensive of this thing that she isn't really, she always feels like when she's at Foxway that she's not part of it, but she's so defensive of it. Yeah, it's hard for her. She mentions often in this, I feel like in this section, we really see much more of her being like, okay, the phone's not going to be for me because no one calls for me. I'm not psychic. And then it is for her because it's Gansey saying someone broke in. You know, like there's a lot of little moments like that where she's putting herself outside of belonging, even though she does still belong to the household. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I want to get your take on that. Do you think Ronan is actually reticent on the basis of religion or does he just not want to be there because he doesn't like people having a read on him that he doesn't have control over? I think it is religious based because so much of what he does is based, like the fact that he still goes to church, you know, he talks about belief in the devil and it's not up to him to decide what's heaven or hell or whatever right but I do also think that it comes from his own self-loathing because he knows that he is not not what he's meant to be right like he is something else so the fact that if he's surrounded by more something else he's just too confronted by that reality so he can't do both you know and he doesn't want to be seen I don't think like he wants to know what he is but he doesn't want other people to see him do not perceive me yes hard same Ronan I feel you Okay. Yeah, because I kind of thought that there was, like, some truth in it, but I also thought maybe it's just because Cal got a hold on him last time and it was not a pleasant experience for him. And so he was like, F that S, I'm not going back. Yeah, but I also don't think that he, like, Blue seems to come at it from a point of view that Ronan is judging me. He's judging my family. Whereas I don't think he's doing that. This is just a belief that he has. And he actually is like, that's just my thing. Like, you don't have to believe it. That's the vibe I get from that. It's not that he's trying yeah. to force her into a box or that he's judging her or anything he's just like mm, but it shrug. still hurts because yeah. look I'm hurt by any family member or friend who's like yeah okay I love you but like gay people should not have rights because I'm like okay well I, I see your point and also that is not okay it's just, it doesn't excuse it it doesn't make me feel any better in fact it makes me feel worse I don't want the <laughs> exception I want to be just part of the I want to be folded into everybody else it reminds me of the scene like there's an episode of Seinfeld where Elaine's dating putty and she finds out that he's religious and she's like but does it bother you that I'm not religious and he's like nah I'm not the one going to hell and she gets so wound up about the fact that he thinks he's she's going to hell and she's like why do you not care that I'm going to hell and he's like what do I care what do you want me to care this is what I feel this conversation is because he is also yeah. incredibly calm I think Ronan's very good at not being angry when there's no point yeah he doesn't have anything to prove in that situation and he doesn't actually want to upset Blue he doesn't want to say something to upset her but 
he's also, he's also not just lie. in a way he's also just stating his boundaries being like i don't want to go yeah do you think they're right to tell him he has to do you think gansey's right to require it of him i think because his reasoning is probably a bit fraught and i think they're right to point out the fact that you can't be upset about you can't choose which occult is okay and which isn't when you yourself is uh, you know you're kind of a cult like we don't know what you are so you don't it's hypocritical for you to stand there and be like this is okay but this isn't so i think that's what makes him go in the end because he he can acknowledge that he doesn't like being a hypocrite right like he doesn't want to hold that within himself so i think in a way if someone is coming at something with a flawed thing then it's okay to try and like push that boundary a little. If he was saying that I am mortally afraid of psychics and this is a fear that I have, then no, they shouldn't yeah. make him go, you know? Yeah, don't perform unauthorized exposure therapy on your friends. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So I guess it depends where people are coming from. Boundaries. It's always good to exert a boundary, but I think you also need to be open to your boundary being challenged, which he is. Yeah. So I'm proud yeah. of him. Good work, Ronan. I love you. <laughs> don't leave me. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, oh no. Oh, the tears. I have cried. I think that was all I had. Um, are you are you ready to move on to tangential? I had a few there. Mm. I love that Blue spits water on his shoes. I love that she <laughs> says that she's got swamp eyes and Gansy's like trying real hard to be offended. On his um, hideous boat shoes that he still has, <laughs> even though he's bought all this other new stuff. <laughs> and like his toes are poking through the top and he's like, I like these shoes. And she's like, children are starving. She's so offended (laughs) by his terrible polo shirts. I mean, yes. And I love that Adam, one of the things I really love is that Adam's not very present in this section, but he does sort of say, now do you feel better after Gansy's like spent two days Mm. straight awake and then buys a whole bunch of stuff. Adam's just like, yep, this is just you being you. Do you feel better? And Blue's the one who gets like rage, ragey and apocalyptic about it. I kind of love that. Yeah, speaking of Adam, just the low level of anxiety that you get in the background that is Adam when he's just like, everyone else is getting on with summer and looking for things. And he's just like, when are we going to, how long are we in DC for? He just has this question Mm. that comes out of the blue because you just know he's stewing on that. Yeah. And he just, he can't, he's got, he's so, he's spread so thin. He's got no bandwidth for anything else. Yeah, he's so tired. And Gansy's like, oh, I'm going to have to talk to him. And then Ronan's slamming the BMW door and he's like, oh, I'm going to have to talk to him. I'm like, he is dadsy. Dadsy. Oh, A plus Dadsy. The other tangential I had was parallels that the Grey Men and Gansy were very similar. Mm. Um, and that Gansy and Alfred, you know, I loved the the quote on page 179 about Alfred. He was one man, but he changed Anglo-Saxon England forever. He imposed order and honor, and under that crushed down grasp of principle, the flower of poetry and civility had burst through. And you're seeing that as it happens with the Gansy. Mm. Yeah, I love that. So mm. just a beautiful parallel. And on page 211, um, there's an echo back to book one with this was going to be a night, mm. which I really loved. Uh, did you have anything else? The only other thing I had, I just love that line on page 213. This idea that we become stories or story become us. You know, Ronan is talking mm. about Pygmalion and Alice in Wonderland. And he said that he'd heard it so often in his youth. He no longer could judge whether or not he they were any good, whether or not he actually liked them. The movie and the novel were history now. They were his parents. And I love how when you've inhabited this story enough, it just becomes this thing. You don't actually have an opinion on it anymore because it's just this living part of you. Yeah. I love it. I was yeah. actually tossing up about making that my in-depth, but then I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you want to go into in-depth? Yeah, sure. Do you want to go first or shall I? Oh, you go first. Okay, so I chose an in-depth marginalia on page 210, and it is quite long, so I will just read it. Um, On the other side of this game, a tired Volvo was parked beneath a tattered fallen string of flag bunting. It was lit from within, like the entrance to hell. It took a moment to register it was on fire, or at least working up to it. Boys stood around the Volvo, drinking and smoking, their forms distorted and dark against the smouldering upholstery. Goblins around a bonfire. Something inside Ronan was anxious and moving, angry and restive. The fire ate him from the inside. So context here is we're at the substance party. They've just arrived. They're sort of taking in the scene and they're not even out of the car yet. They're just driving up to it and, you know, they're going to have the showdown with Kavinsky and they're both really, Ronan and Gansy are both really riled up. Yeah. I think it relates to our theme because this is a reality that Kavinsky has created. He sort of created the scene that is you know, a wonderland devoid of the rules of real life. You've got these really privileged kids there who have to pretend to be something at a different time. But here they can just be these kind of, you know, the goblins 
setting things on fire and just misbehaving and acting in ways that are really you know kind of frightening in a lot of ways yeah and connection as well because you've got this connection between Ronan because he is just he feels connected to that he feels this drive because he's so restless within himself but he's also not not part of it he's still somewhere on the outside Mm. the thing that it made me think of is Christina Rossetti's poem Goblin Market so really early on in the poem it's quite a long poem but there's this line in it that says we must not look at goblin men we must not buy their fruits who knows upon what soil they feed their hungry thirsty roots the whole point of the poem is sort of like it's about temptation and it's about going somewhere you're not supposed to and then it is about the sisterhood because the sister brings her back she eats the fruit she does this thing she's not supposed to and then her sister has to strike the bargain with the goblins to bring her back into the world of the living in a way to make her part of life and they use the sisterhood as a um, a life lesson when they go on and have children and families of their own. There's the line at the end where she says to her kids, for there is no friend like a sister in calm or stormy weather to cheer one on the tedious way, to fetch one if one goes astray, to lift one if one totters down, to strengthen whilst one stands. And I just thought that was really relevant to Ronan in this way. He's tempted by these goblin men. He's tempted by these this life, this wild fruit, this excess and destruction and yet it is the brotherhood that holds him in place it's this tie that he has to adam to gansey to noah even to blue this this family that he has and his own family even though it's problematic you know the lynches are a tight-knit family even though they fight it's still something that holds them together they still go to church all the time so it just really reminded me of that and how you know that whole the fire ate him from the inside is something that I just feel so much like I remember feeling like that I remember sometimes still feeling like that when sometimes you're just too big for the things that are inside you and you don't know how to get it out and you want to be destructive you want to do something dangerous and horrible and like I totally get that (laughs) so going forward I think it's just it's important to remember not to give in to those wildest impulses because there are consequences and you need strong foundations. You need people who care about you yeah, to help you work through that. And it's important to lean on them. So don't just sit in your feelings and feel untethered. Rely on the people yeah. who love you. So yeah. I'm going to have to find that poem. It's very long, I will say, because I've got her collected works. Let me just mm. see. I've got it here. See, it's very thick. Oh my gosh. Um, And I'm just going to check because it starts on page five and it ends on... Page 20. So, oh my gosh. It's quite the long poem, but I do love it. I just love things that I feel a little bit magical and whimsical and like yeah. folklore you know? Yes. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I know exactly what you mean. Um, I picked Marginalia to go in depth on on page 181. So the quote that I picked is, History was always buried deep, even when you knew where to look, and it was hard to excavate it without damaging it. Brushes and cotton swabs, not chisels and pickaxes slow work you had to like doing it and the context is that the gray man is breaking into Gansey's place extremely gently there's been this whole description about how carefully he picks the lock and how carefully he puts the door back and Mm. he's tiptoeing around this model of of Henrietta and he's admiring all of his Glendower paraphernalia and I think it relates to the theme because he's thinking about how hard it is to search for these long lost historical things and he knows this as an academic who specializes Mm. in a field that's really quite niche so he he, you know fraternity and brotherhood in old english literature basically like that's very niche i think Mm. um he's thinking about what the dream of discovering these things is versus the reality of actually looking for it and he's connecting it with his own experience and just in a few a few pages before that he'd been enjoying the challenge of translation as well so like he's kind of connecting his experience in translation to Gansey's search and he notes that it requires a lot of like this patience and this understanding that it's hard and also that you have to love it to do it and you have to want to do it it's reminding me of something in my life now um my daughter is doing a project for school that's about migrant stories and since I am a migrant I'm like her first port of call because I am the like the closest person to her that has migrated um on my husband's side, they've been in Australia for ages, and on my parents' side, we've got a line going back to the Mayflower, so they've been in the U.S. for ages, um, on my dad's side anyway. But we actually called my parents today to talk to them about their family, because I thought, well, you know, if you, my daughter should have the opportunity to actually ask questions. And, you know, as I'm the migrant person, 
she got to ask like well what were some of the traditions you had growing up and here my parents talk about them but my dad was talking about his mom who's got pretty advanced dementia and she now doesn't remember anything about her grandkids and she knows who her kids are so the last time he spoke to her he was saying that she was so happy and so cheerful and so glad to be talking to him she asked him every few minutes do you have a family do you have kids Mm. so this was really hard for him and he said she was still upbeat and this is the, my grandmother has always been like this like she's the most she gave me this phrase when I was a teenager and of course I hated it attitude of gratitude mm. but honestly it has been something that I have stuck with my whole life like find the thing to be grateful for but you know as a salty teen I didn't want anything to do with it but I really do think of her like every week at least and this phrase and I just love that even though her personal history is gone she is still herself Mm. So I think that I, it made me consider how much of our history we actually need in order to be who we are. Um, and that maybe uncovering history is like a bonus, but it's only part of the whole picture. And that's kind mm. of where I came, came down on that. And upon consideration, it made me think like, what, what happens when we go and, and will we be forgotten? And I think I'm okay with the idea that I will be forgotten, but I really want my love to live on. Like I want this legacy of love to be something that gets taught and passed down and given on and on and on. So I think my focus for my history will be making it easy to find. That there will always be this like chain of love going back and it won't be hard and you won't have to look for it with cotton swabs. You'll Aww. just, it'll just be there. It'll just be visible. Oh, that's so lovely. The I love history. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, it was, um, yeah. Hard to see my dad so shaken up actually. It was an incredibly difficult thing. I remember when my grandmother, she had quite advanced Alzheimer's before she passed. And mm -hmm. the last time my dad went to visit her, just how hard he took it. You know, she didn't know who yeah. he was, couldn't remember him. And he was just so upset by it. And it's just, it's so hard. I, and yeah, my mum got into this argument with my aunt because, you know, my grandmother would ask where her husband was and my aunt would be like, he's dead. And my mum would be like, stop telling her that. My mum would just be like, oh, he's just popped out to the shops because she's not going to remember yeah. in five minutes. So why are you upsetting her every yeah. five minutes? Like, it's bizarre yeah. behaviour. Yeah, sort of, it's hard. It's harder for those witnessing it once you're that far along because they're not aware of it. It's not their reality. They don't know what they've lost, right? Yeah, for sure. I just think it's really beautiful that even though so much of her life has gone from her, she's able to still ask and she still wants to know and she still loves her kids and is just so pleased when they when they call and talk to her. I think that's yeah. really beautiful. Mm -hmm. But it is hard for sure. Yeah. My mother-in-law always said if she got dementia, just stick her in a home and forget about her. <laughs> she's just like, please don't put yourselves through that, which I think is terrible. I would never be able to do yeah. that. I love her. But like also I see why she would say that because I think I would feel the same. Like just put me somewhere and let me go. <laughs> like don't. Don't hurt yourselves. But yeah. Yikes. That's love though, isn't it? That we don't let go. Yeah. That we can't let go. Exactly. Um, Who would you like to spotlight this week? Well, Jen, I, this will not surprise you <laughs> that I am starting my trend of spotlighting Ronan. I just, it really got to me at the end there when he's so emotional about Gansey going to DC without him and he wasn't even asked to go right we'll see this later yeah. on but he he can't communicate it he can't say why it matters to him so much and he just doesn't want to be left behind and this is something that's really yeah. gonna he's gonna struggle with for a long time and we've all felt like that when you feel like your friends are outgrowing you or moving on to bigger things without you and you are mm -hmm. uh, will they forget you will you still matter to them and I think, in a way, all we want is to matter to people. They all want to matter to each other, and they just can't really get there yet. They're still growing into it. So I just want to spotlight yeah. Ronan, because, man, he's throwing his heart literally from his body because he just is feeling too much. So I see you. I see you, boo. <laughs> My ride or die, I got you. Don't worry about it. We got this. Bless. Yeah. Who would you like to spotlight? Um, I'm going to spotlight Blue. I feel like she's mm. going through it. I always want to spotlight people who are going through it. I think that it's really hard for her to be feeling this awful and unwelcome attraction to Gansey. She thinks he's such a dork, but also <laughs> she already can recognize that she would do anything if he asked and that there's something really magnificent about him and she hates it. Um, and she also just doesn't let him get away with anything. She's not on tender hooks at all, but I that's a hard place to be. I think it's really hard when you've 
gone one way you've made one decision and your your life is starting to unfold in a different way and that's what's happening right she's decided adam but it's not actually going to point to adam so it's just a bit rough for her also i really want to spotlight her because she she bears witness to noah every time yeah and that is hard and really beautiful and it feels like the most generous kind of love to stay with someone who's not even aware but is is dying and then waits until he comes back like that is hard and horrible and she does that so yeah blue this week for me yeah that is fair that is an amazing act of love and i think for anyone who is doing that work especially like caring work or anything like that where you're looking after someone you're bearing witness to someone's suffering almost at the cost of your own well-being because you love someone so much you know don't just do something stand there yeah it's a hard thing to do so it's a a very worthy spotlight well okay on that cheerful note (laughs) next week we'll be reading chapters 28 to 33 through the theme of excess can't wait to really dive into all the Ronan and Kavinsky and the feelings of it all so much excess excess of everything so yeah definitely looking forward to that gonna be great thank you jen thank you for potting with me today it was so good always a great time best way to have a saturday absolutely agree (laughs) (laughs) i love this time of the week it's just perfect well i'll see you next week then all right see you then Bye. bye Thanks for joining us today. Marginally Pod is written, edited, and produced by Jen D and Jen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed our chat, you can subscribe to Marginally Pod on your podcast platform of your choice. Your support means the world to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. For extended show notes or to find out more about us, visit us at www.marginaliapod.com.